0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. The controversial PPC billboards about immigration are being taken down. An underlying question, why'd they put one up in Hamilton? The G7 is winding down. How did Prime Minister Trudeau do? And the conversion of Queen Street to a two-way street has been delayed again. What's the timeline now? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Have you seen the billboards yet? Lots of controversy this past weekend uh, about billboards that have been sh- popping up. There's at least one of them here in Hamilton, it's just in the west end of the city, uh, just on the Aberdeen exit. You come off Aberdeen, you can see it, uh, just off on your left-hand side. Uh, the, uh, they're showcasing ads that uh, promote the People's Party of Canada's controversial stance on immigration. And uh, at first, they said, "Look, it, I don't care what the controversy is. We're going to leave them up." But there was such an outcry about the, the messaging that uh, is appearing on these messages that now the group that's uh, in, f- in charge of the billboards themselves has said they're going to remove all of them right across the country. Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. If Are you surprised by the pushback on these things?
2: Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, I think we've seen uh you know some certain amount of dog whistling uh, around the question of uh, immigration being you know used by groups that uh, are promoting forms of kind of white supremacist agendas and so uh, you know over the past few years and i think as a result the uh, people who are opposed to that are getting more organized and pushing back when these things come up
0: it's, uh, I guess, inevitable, isn't it, Peter, that this was going to be an election issue, maybe even more so than in past years, because of uh, some of the controversy about border crossing and, 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 well, what some people consider to be refugees, others consider to be, uh, well, it depends on the term. I've heard invasions of, of people like this, and it's, uh, it's, it's become a problem. It was, I guess, a matter of time before somebody seized on it and says, okay, we're going to run with this.
2: Yeah, I mean I think especially in a moment of economic uncertainty, uh you're able to uh mobilize a group of voters who are maybe a bit more authoritarian in their inclinations and uh see it really important that uh, there's stability and so a question of uh, sustaining the, you know, borders of a nation state become uh, an important appeal to those uh, that group of voters. I mean, I think the conservatives have tried hard in their in their criticism of the question of the asylum, uh, people seeking asylum at the borders, uh, they've really made that a hot-button issue. But uh, ultimately, when you choose to ride the back of the tiger, sometimes you end up in the mouth. And in, in many ways, I think they've delivered the the part of the electorate that's really concerned of that to uh, Maxime Bernier's party, or at least open the ground, where... Those people may choose a different option than the conservatives, who, you know, on the one hand want to bring that up, but on the other hand don't really want to change Canada's historic immigration policy.
0: It's it's interesting that you bring that that comparison up, uh, because you're right. I mean, over the the couple last couple of years of this controversy, the conservatives have been kind of nibbling around this issue, haven't they? Hinting, you know, but well, without being directly, uh, you know, f- upfront about it and getting in people's face about it. Uh, more the criticism was more about the government than it was about the people that were actually crossing. Uh, but you know, Bernier, of course, is a guy who tends to go to extremes anyway, so there it is right up there, say no to mass immigration, and it's, uh, I think it was a bit of a shock to some people to actually see something that blatant.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a bit of a, a weird situation, because uh, Bernier claims it wasn't his party, and in fact, uh, you know, wasn't involved in it, and uh, certainly... The ads were paid for by a group that wasn't uh, his party, but you know, take one of his uh, big slogans and part of his uh, platform, and uh, you know, plaster that that there. And so, yeah, I mean, Bernier has really decided to push hard on this issue. I think he realizes that uh, you know the Canadian consensus uh, on immigration policy uh, held by. You know the three largest parties, probably the greens as well uh you know it has it doesn't hold anywhere near like uh you know the mass view in Canada. It's maybe held by a majority, but there's a substantial minority that's uncomfortable uh with that and so Bernier is you know trying to find a way to make space in politics by really making that his issue uh but doing so in a manner obviously that uh, there's a kind of a nudge nudge wink wink uh know, to those who hold much more radical views, and we should have less immigration, uh, and you know, have views that are much more along the lines of we have to keep Canada, uh, you know, white or you know, different sorts of white supremacist views. And again, Bernier uh, has said he disagrees with them, but you know, he takes pictures with those people, and when that's pointed out, he says, "Oh, I didn't know. Uh, you know, I disagree with them on that, but nothing more uh, substantial in terms of distancing
0: himself." It, was it inevitable that this would start to 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 come into the Canadian political scene to the extent that it sting, seems to be these days, given what's going on south of the border
2: uh yeah, I mean I think you know traditionally uh the view has been that uh there's enough party uh, there's, sorry, there's enough seats uh with significant communities you know drawn from immigration that uh, there's no incentive for our major political parties to uh play up those issues and so we have a consensus that keeps them out of politics but certainly uh you know given uh, the views of the population and the divisions of views on that there's always been an open spot there for a new party that was trying to find some space to really politicize that question and now again, I mean, a party that's at four percent in the polls may not be around in another uh, couple of months after the election because you don't elect many people in our system uh, with that. But nevertheless, it does change our, our discourse in politics, and some things that we would have thought were beyond the pale, uh, you know, become part of our political discussion.
0: Do we go to the ex- extreme that they did? I mean, are we going to start hearing rants of build a wall? Uh, even Even a metaphorical one?
2: Uh well I think you know among Bernier supporters there's some people who would be happy to take up those metaphors because uh you know if you look at uh, what they have to say they see a lot of good in Donald Trump and you know the and especially the parts of you know Donald Trump that are things like build a wall and so they would like to bring that kind of politics to Canada uh, I kind of doubt we'll see Bernier go there but certainly his immigration platform is is one you know which says let's not have family reunification Let's make it solely economic, let's have smaller numbers, which is really, you know, the idea. I mean, and this is, I think, me, the irony that this billboard appears to have been uh, sponsored by a a company that uh, is involved in the import and export of proteins. But, uh, you know, it's really, you know, he's seeking a kind of immigration that would be really purely, I think, based about getting people to come in and do a certain number of jobs.
0: (laughs) you know historically if we could put that perspective on this for a second because uh, you know I've talked to some people that see what's going on here and they say okay this is bad but it's always been like this in north america uh, you know there was a lot of this sort of thing when the irish came over there's a lot of this thing when the, the, you you know people from from ukraine and 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 some of the eastern european nations went on it so uh, but this seems to be a lot more vitriolic and and again i wasn't there then neither were you but i mean we've read about the historical references and the accounts of what happened uh, even in places like Hamilton, uh, the, you know the biases against uh, immigration, but it just it just seems to have been ramped up considerably with, with what's gone on in the last two or three years.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know that has always been present, and there's always uh, people in the population, a of the population, that is is susceptible to to holding those views. I think what's changed is really the elite discourse around this uh i think coming out of the second world war we had a very different sense of human rights than we did going into the 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 world war and i was seen uh you know in the development of things like human rights codes and uh, you know moving against uh, discrimination and accommodations uh and so forth and getting rid of the the bits of uh, kind of jim crow that we had in ontario for instance right so we, there was a real change in how people thought about these questions and so even when uh, Preston Manning in the you know, early, late 80s, early 90s began saying, let's limit immigration to Canada, uh, he decides that soon that that's actually not a good policy for him because he's attracted uh, all these kind of white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And at that time, uh, public opinion was that, well, that's odious. And you wouldn't find anyone in the mainstream of politics who are willing to say, no, that's just an opinion and we should hear it among all the others. I think uh, 25 years later, we're in a different stage where those voices suddenly get defenders, at least at the edges of the mainstream, saying that somehow they should be listened to, and I think that's
0: what's uh, opening this up. Peter, has this come down to an issue of color? Uh, well, I It, mean, it I seems th- as if the the inference a lot of the time with some of these slogans and some of these marches and rallies is, uh, we're not necessarily against immigration, we just em- it's immigration from those countries that we really don't like.
2: Well, I mean, I think that's how context matters. I mean, people will say, no, there's nothing, you know, racist about it. It's just about mass immigration. But, you know, you have to think about the context in which uh, immigration is happening. And I think also you have to think about the diversity within that position. There's some who really do feel that, uh, for whatever reason, there's, you know, there's too many people. It's driving up housing prices. It's, you know, putting pressure on the environment and so on. Uh, But they're mobilized in many cases and, and used by those who have a different agenda, which is precisely a kind of a white supremacist one. And so, uh, you know, th- th- these things aren't all of one kind, but certainly the one opens the door to the
0: other. Somebody asked me uh, in the newsroom this morning, uh, you know, because these are in selected cities and aren't all over the place, uh, and Hamilton was selected as one of them. And they wondered why Hamilton. And I'm just wondering if the events at City Hall over the last couple of months uh, have played into this right now, because it has received some national attention.
2: Yeah, I mean it's hard to know uh, to what extent uh, there was specific targeting and on what basis they decided in which cities to run. I mean, certainly what happened at City Hall would be part of it. Uh, but I mean, we also saw the stories uh, what, about a year ago saying that Hamilton might be a city ripe for this kind of politics because you have, uh, you know, you have a lot of people who haven't been getting ahead uh, and uh, you know are looking for some kind of scapegoat. Uh, you know, so there might be a space for kind of right authoritarian politics to say, well, we'll bring some kind of form of order to it. And so, you know, there may be that aspect, too, in terms of the decision-making.
0: Well, the other element that really, I think, puts a, a, a emphasis on this, too, is that study that was released a couple of months ago, I guess, now that Hamilton has more hate crimes per capita than any other city in the country. Maybe the, the, the yellow vesters and, and the people supporting this thing would look at this place as fertile ground for, for that sort of activity.
2: Yeah, I mean again I wouldn't want to uh, infer that kind of level of, you know, nefarious intentions uh, in the the group that bought these ads. I mean, I don't know again on what basis they made uh their decisions. Uh, you know, they may simply have done some polling to see where this might message might be uh, a bit more popular. Uh I mean, it's really hard to tell in these cases and this is a kind of an aside to this is I mean, we have taken corporate money out of politics in our funding regime, but you know, here we have an instance of a firm buying what you know quite—you know—it's hard to distinguish from a partisan ad, telling you what party to vote for and being able to spend relatively large sums of money uh, in it. And so, you know, in, in this context, again, it's hard to know what the decision making is, or even what kind of accountability can be, you know, brought, say, onto Bernier's party when he can claim that it wasn't me, it was, uh, you know, these these deep-pocketed interests that were willing to to buy these billboards.
0: Is this another example of this ongoing concern about third-party advertising? You know, it's, it's one thing to, to, to make the parties themselves that are running, or the candidates themselves, responsible. And you see that with some of the ads, the political ads in the states. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Peter Grafe, and I endorse this commercial. Uh, we don't do that up around here, and you really don't know who's paid for it and who's put it together when you see something or hear something on in, in the media.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, if you check the small print, I guess you can figure that out. Uh, I mean, to me, the, the more interesting thing is, I mean, in the past, we've had third-party advertisements going back to, say, the, the free trade election, where they weren't really telling you if you support free trade, vote the Conservatives. They, they figured out people could figure that out themselves. <laughs> it was like, you know, we're for free trade, or we've seen the unions running anti-conservative ads. You know, can you trust Tim Hudak? But they're not telling you exactly who to vote for, uh, you know, to, to beat them. I mean, there's a variety of choices you know, in a provincial election, but to have a a kind of a corporate ad, uh, you know, a third-party paid ad that tells you exactly which party to vote for on a particular issue, uh, it's something new, and it it is a way in which people are trying to get around the limits on, uh, you know, private sector money in in elections, and so, you know, we might want to ask, you know, does a different form of regulation required if we we don't want uh, this kind of form of, you know, nudge-nudge, wink-wink. I mean, if you take a platform engagement and buy an ad, you know, linking that to a party, uh, how do how can we, you know, ensure that there's still a level playing field and that the deep pockets don't get a chance to really out-advertise any of the other parties?
0: On the other side of the coin, Peter, is there an argument to be made here for suppressing free speech?
2: Uh, no, I mean, I I don't really see it in this kind of context. A uh, private sector ad company... Um, uh, I mean, I think, you know, the issue for, for uh, Patterson Signs is that they don't want to be in the uh, business of having to decide beyond their sort of basic standards what to, to put it up or not, what not to put up. But I think we have seen a change in how people do politics, and particularly in the States, with the, the idea of boycotting uh, brands and boycotting networks based on what they're showing. And, you know, I think we're seeing that come into this context of uh, this particular ad.
0: Is this the, uh, the new normal for uh, political advertising now?
2: Uh, well, I mean, again, uh, it's hard to know how successful people will be in the long run in, in trying to block particular ads. Uh, it's, to me, it's a bit of a strange moment we're in that people have less confidence in their ability to elect governments to get things done and so feel that they have to engage in these you know boycotts of private sector actors if they want to uh, affect outcomes.
0: Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome, Peter Gray, of course, uh, from uh, McMaster University Political Science Department.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: How do you get a read on exactly how successful this place, the, the, the summit, was? For the first time in the, uh, recent history, anywhere, there was no official communiqué that was issued at the end of the summit, but that was planned. They. Uh, they said right off the get-go they weren't going to use that, that policy again this year, uh, but there seemed to be some consensus on a few issues. Joining us to talk about what happened and the implications is uh, Stephen Sadman, who is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. How would you how would you rate uh, what happened over there? Uh, was it a successful summit? It didn't fail as much as people expected. It was a pretty ambitious agenda set up. I wanted to talk about environmental issues. I'm not so sure they spent very much time at all on that, aside from, the obviously, the Amazon fires. Uh, but trade was a, a big issue, but so was global economy. And I'm not so sure they resolved anything there.
3: No, I mean, the whole, you mentioned that there was no communique, which means that there was no agreement, ultimately, that each of these events usually has a checklist of things that they, try, that they pretty much agreed to beforehand, and so these summits have a way of of, of blessing the, the agreement amongst these countries, and so that's one of the major contributions of these efforts is to sort of chart the way ahead for the next year or two about what's going to be done. And because there's no communique, there's essentially no consensus. There's no agreement on what's going to happen next on the environment, on the, econ- on the international economy, all the rest. Trump believes that everybody else is recession, but the United States, and so therefore they should do more to keep the United States out of recession. But that's kind of backwards.
0: That's. One of the things that I, I was a bit of a head scratcher for me. I mean, I know that some of the leaders went over there with the intention of talking to the president about what was going on in the states and his policies and the impact that's having on the global markets. Uh, I didn't hear that in any of the any of the discussions when they had their one on ones, and there was certainly no consensus that maybe the United States should pull back. In fact, Trump doubled down on it and said he wanted to increase the sanctions.
3: Well. He said both things uh, I mean the thing with trump is he he can say four things in the same sense, and they can all contradict each other and He did that over the course of the weekend because he said both that uh he had you know some regrets about the 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 tariffs against China, uh, of course, please remember that there's still tariffs against uh most European countries on steel and aluminum those mm-hmm. haven't gone away yet um, and he also said later on that he re- regretted that he didn't have more tariffs on China. And then later on, he said that he has very favorable attitudes towards uh, the leader of China and that they're, they're close to, they had a few phone calls, and they're close to an agreement. So it all means nothing because uh, it's all contradictory.
0: Stephen, maybe you could outline to our listeners exactly what happens with the, on the global economy. Uh, we've talked about tariffs, and Trump still seems to be of the opinion that tariffs are a good thing. Uh, I think there's only about five economists in, in North America that agree with that, but four of them work for him, so I guess that's where he's getting the influence on this. But there's a, there's a global impact to what's going on with, with those tariffs.
3: Absolutely. Uh, what tra- bothers Trump the most, I think, is that we now have these global supply chains where anything that you buy that is more complicated than a t-shirt involves products from more than one country. And so to build anything you have to have pieces from here, there, and everywhere, and if you start having uh, taxes on on these these things, it greatly complicates the the calculations of companies and causes them to uh, change their production uh processes and even reduce production and so it can depress uh the sale of goods and services it can cause businesses to be disrupted and so i think that's the principal complaint people have is that the the, the tariffs this this trade war which was entirely unearned um is disrupting patterns of trade causing complications for businesses. And when businesses have complications, they invest less, they do less, and that tends to uh, create a recession. And so the, the fact that the United States is starting to tilt towards a recession uh, is going to have global impact itself because the United States is a bigger consumer of imports from the rest of the world. Uh, so this trade war, again, it's not just a trade war between China and the United States, but it's between the United States and pretty much everybody else. Um, is destabilizing to the world economy, and and it makes things much more uncertain, and markets hate uncertainty.
0: But even with his comments again this past weekend, Trump still, I don't know if he believes it, but it's certainly the gospel he sees uh, talking here, is that China is the one who's paying for this. You know, know, the the money's coming out of their pockets, and the United States is, is the beneficiary of this. He doesn't seem to understand the global implications of tariffs.
3: He doesn't understand anything about tariffs. A uh, tariff is a tax on imports, and so therefore, if you're t- putting tariffs on Chinese goods going to the United States, it's American consumers who pay for it. It's American producers who who rely on Chinese components for their computers or their TVs or their phones or whatever. So it's making things more expensive for Americans. Now, uh, what the cost the Chinese might be paying for it is they might be lowering uh, their prices that they are charging, or they may or that uh, currencies may be changing a little bit, so that makes it the, the shock to American consumers a little bit less. But none of those things are particularly good for anybody otherwise. So, no, Trump has been wedded to what I would call, or many would call, a mercantilist view of trade, which is I get mine and you get whatever's left over, uh, which is not the way the world economy has worked since uh, World War II. It's sort of the strategy that led to the Great Depression, but it's not something that. That countries have really relied on uh, since since the end of the war, and it's very destructive to again international trade and uh, making long term uh, decisions for most companies.
0: In uh, National Post last week, I'm sure you saw the article. Andrew Coyne wrote that uh, if in fact we are heading into a recession, uh, Donald Trump's fingerprints are going to be all over them. Uh, is that a fair assessment?
3: I think so. I mean, the, to be fair, the economy is cyclical, and so we've had Growth mostly around the world, uh, recovering from the 2008 uh, financial crisis. So we're sort of due at some point. But most of the policies that he's been f- uh, following lately are pushing a recession to happen sooner rather than later.
0: Uh, and we've talked about some of those vis-a-vis tariffs and the impact that that's having, and, uh, and I'm glad you brought that point up. I think it was lost on some people that there are still tariffs on a number of G7 countries that were in attendance there, and I'm so sure that that came up during some of those conversations, but it's certainly going to have an impact on those economies because uh, as we've seen from some of the numbers, uh, France, Germany, the UK, um, there are a number of countries right now that, that are having some very problematic economic forecasts.
3: Well certainly you know the UK is destroying itself via Brexit so its its forecasts are pretty dismal. Uh and again the rest of Europe is interdependent so if, if the UK has a, a an economy that spirals downwards then it affects the rest of them. Um, again we've gone about you know eight or so years of, of growth uh and so it's inevitable that that things will decline a little bit. Uh we you know the the story before the 2008 financial crisis was hey we've done away with uh, economic cycles and That crisis proved that we haven't done that hasn't happened, and so these things are due eventually. But a lot of the unnecessary conflict that's been spawned by Brexit, by and by Trump, are exacerbating the trends.
0: Well, and especially on the home front, uh, quite aside from the policies, I mean, you know, he, he keeps going after tax cuts. He wants more tax cuts, more cuts, which means less money for the government, of course. Uh, one of the things that rarely gets discussed in this country or in the United States, I guess for that matter, Stephen, is uh, is the national debt, uh, which is skyrocketing right now. And eventually, uh, the, the you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost, aren't they?
3: Uh, I'm not so worried about the debt itself. The United States still has a large economy, and, and, and the ratio of the debt to the... The economy is not so problematic. other people have bigger problems with this. I think concerns about those ratios were part of the policies that led to all these austerity measures that made the financial crisis worse and the response to the financial crisis worse. But this is so very much unnecessary because uh, Obama had set the country on a course towards having lower lower debts and, and lower deficits. and the tax cut that I had last year, which had a stimulus effect on the economy. that's why the American economy is doing as well as it has been. Um has evaporated it it was temporary it uh, allowed allowed firms to buy back their stocks, but they didn 't really reinvest as much as people expected it didn 't have the trickle down effect uh, uh, that people had promised and it blew a hole in the budget deficit. It was very predictable and uh Trump is now desperate for more tax cuts because he is facing a, a problematic election next year and so what do you do? you promise tax cuts but the the challenges how do you pay for that and the big sources of money are defense which he doesn't want to cut and then social welfare programs uh social security and medicare which are two third rails in american politics that so if you talk about cutting those you start losing the votes of old people um and so he may try to do that but uh, that's really going to uh, cause him tremendous problems in the election and for his party as well.
0: One of the things uh, that he's always pointed to over the last couple of years anyway, uh, t- as to how great has the economy is, greatest economy of all time, of course in the history of the United States, in his words, uh, was the stock market. Uh, that's gone off the rails right now, too. What's going on there?
3: Well, the stock market has been, uh, again, I mentioned before that the, economy, the people who invest uh, hate uncertainty. Trump is an uncertainty engine. For a while there, they thought, and they of their tax cuts, but not their trade wars. And they've got, instead, they've got tax cuts and then trade wars. And trade wars have been disrupting businesses and, and has caused problems for firms. And, and it's destroyed uh, a large sector of the American agricultural marketplace. The Chinese no longer buy soybeans from the United States. And so the people who invested in it in the long term are now on, uh, very, very concerned about about what's going to be happening with these trade wars uh and other bad uh policies for the economy and so they're making their bets now on on the American economy and they're not betting <laughs> they're, not, they're not betting on it, they're starting to bet against it. And that has a self fulfilling prophecy where the uh markets are now much more uh uh have a lot more turmoil. So this is again partly inevitable, but uh the fact that Trump has sort of waged his presidency on on stock market uh performance uh suggests he might face even more problems
0: how problematic is it for him to uh continue with the personal attacks he's had on the uh, the chairman of the federal reserve down there who uh, many would argue is is really just a target of trump's anger right now because he refuses to kowtow to trump's policies
3: well the federal reserve system like the attorney general's office was always seen as being independent uh that they're not supposed to subject themselves to the vagaries of polls or the pressures of a president and thus far, the Fed has held out, held out mostly. Uh, but again, this is part of a larger Trump belief system and maybe even strategy, which is he doesn't really believe in institutions. He doesn't believe that anything can constrain his power. And so he thinks that anybody who's at the Fed or at the Attorney General's office or anywhere else should just do his bidding. And this fundamentally rubs up against the purpose of the Federal Reserve, which is to provide confidence in the American economy. That it doesn't just do what is politically expedient, but what does what's in the best interest of of the long-term run of the of the American economy. And given that the rest of the world depends on the American dollar, uh, this is all not just an American problem; it's a worldwide problem. And so, this is going to raise real challenges if Trump continues with this. It really depends in part on what the response of the Fed, the people of the Fed, do. But if if they at all bend, then all these bumpy lines you've seen in the stock market get a whole lot bumpier.
0: Well, and if the instability is is a contributing factor in that, the fact that he's attacking the chairman of the Federal Reserve and and the heads of other institutions. I mean, he's gone after the CIA, the FBI, as you say, the attorney general's office, just about anybody uh, that doesn't uh, bow down when he suggests this is what they should be doing. That's got to have an impact on the stock market.
3: Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why the stock market was bumpy last week.
0: So the, one of the things that they sort of kind of, like I say, there was no communique, uh, come to some sort of agreement on is they said, look, we, we've got to stop this from going spiraling under control, the, these, these downward economic trends that are happening right now. And they're looking to the United States and saying that something's got to happen here. But I don't know, Stephen, that anybody was bold enough to say, well, Mr. President, you could do that if you just change some of these policies. I don't think anybody was that brazen.
3: Well, the thing is he doesn't listen to people who he disagrees with yeah. and he's his staff has trained themselves to to just agree with him and having groupthink and yes men is is always a good recipe for bad policy. Uh so apparently in the last couple of weeks when people started talking about moving towards recession, he thought that was purely a a media creation because his advisors were not telling him about the various bad news stories that might indicate there's something behind this. So this goes back to Trump's decision-making. He doesn't make decisions based on evidence. He doesn't make decision-making based on, on getting a thorough review of stuff. He goes with his gut, which is usually going with his base inclinations, and he's very fearful of trade. He's very opposed to trade, and as a result, everything else ensues from that.
0: Is there an inevitability then that we're going to head into a recession? I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Cyclically, I think we're two or three years behind the times. I mean, the, the, sec, the cycles are usually in, what, five or six years, aren't they?
3: Um, they range in size, but uh, I think that uh, the trends are pretty clear. I talked about finance, my, my my tax my my investment person last uh, month or so, and, and they're basically saying hold off investing in the market because it's going to go down.
0: So with that, uh, we're looking at uh, a repeat of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That t- that's severe.
3: I don't know because on the one hand. A lot of the fundamentals have changed, that, that we we, a lot of the banks are no longer as exposed. So we don't have to worry about bank failure. The auto industry is in a sounder place than it was 10 years ago, things like that. On the other hand, usually the people you look to the United States for leadership to get, get out of these crises, and the problem with Trump and his staff is that they're trying to do all these kinds of things that are more likely to make things worse. So I, I don't expect them to handle it particularly well, um, and that, that's a real problem.
0: Stephen, uh, uh, the phone rings as soon as you and I finish talking, <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's Donald Trump, and he says, "Look, I, I, I need some advice here. What's the one thing I need to kind of turn this thing around? At least start the ball rolling in the other direction." Resign. <laughs> Could you be more specific?
3: I would like Donald. I think Donald Trump would resignation would be the best thing for the American economy at this this point.
0: Or defeated in the obviously in the upcoming election.
3: Yes, but, but, but that's it. But by that time, the time that happens we will be well into whatever is going to be happening economically he's not going to pull out he's not going to change the the trade wars i mean that would that would be the thing i would tell him uh that the first thing he needs to do is, is create certainty uh in the markets by stop attacking the federal reserve and by uh finding a way out of the trade war with china and get rid of the uh, tariffs against uh, european steel and aluminum and and also japanese steel and aluminum and he's not going to do that so
0: well, aside from his bravado, I guess one of the other contributing factors, as you mentioned, is he surrounds himself with people that just uh, prop him up. I mean, the, the the Wilbur Rosses and the Navarros that are saying, no, you're on the right track here, Mr. President, keep doing what you're doing. I, I, I mean, they, they've got to know that that's not really what's going on.
3: Well, the thing is, that those two individuals are are examples of not yes-men, but people who have believe in trade wars. It's not just that they're doing what Donald Trump wants. They, Trump picked them because they're the trade warriors. They're hawks on trade, so they're not going to change their stance. They, they think that, you know, just got to ride it through until you get the outcome
0: you want. And uh, and again, to use his theory, you have to win it. This, this is not to try to find some middle ground. Let's try to find something that they can take away and that we can take away. It's, it's got to be total victory for him.
3: I don't think the phrase win-win is in Donald Trump's vocabulary.
0: Uh, we saw that with the NAFTA negotiations, didn't we?
3: Well, yes and no, and I, I think that, that Canada got out of the NAFTA negotiations with very minor losses, uh, the big thing was allowing Trump to declare it his deal rather than Obama's deal, although NAFTA wasn't even Obama's deal either. Um, but it allowed him to rebrand, and that's one of the ways to handle Trump, is to give him an opportunity to feed his ego and to rebrand things that are his rather than somebody else. I'm sure if the Iranians showed up and said, hey, how about this deal? And it was identical to the the Iran original Iran nuclear deal, but it has a, a, uh, Trump's name all over it, Trump would be okay with that. Uh,
0: there's a lot of talk about you know, handshaking and deals and this and that. And I know that he met with uh, the Prime Minister, he met with uh, Boris Johnson, he met with the Prime Minister Abe from Japan, uh, promised the two of them, the, the latter two, big deals, big trade deals, uh, to try to help them along with their economies, especially the UK after the Brexit thing comes to uh, the end of October. But he even said he was going to talk about increasing trade uh, quarters in, in Canada too. Uh, promises are, are easy to make. Uh, it's a lot harder to actually enact some of these things. Is there just a lot of bravado to that, or do you see actually uh, a more of an initiative within the G7 to try to increase trade? Well,
3: I think the rest of the G7 would like to get rid of these trade barriers, but again, it's hard to do that when the United States is, is, is erecting them. So I, I think it was a lot of bravado by, by Trump, but I don't think there was much movement. Uh, maybe uh, the Japanese and Trump agreed to some stuff that might lead to a trade agreement somewhere down the road. Uh, but otherwise, again, no communique means no def- definite promises, no commitments.
0: Stephen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Stephen Saban, of course, uh, Patterson Chair at uh, the uh, Carleton University at the uh, Norm Patterson School of International Affairs.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about what's going on locally. For uh, quite some time, there's been discussion here in the city about uh, the uh, conversions of uh, one-way streets back to two-way streets, and we've seen some of them uh, that have already occurred very successfully. Uh, one of the more contentious ones, though, is Queen Street, that uh, well has been a source of debate for many councillors uh, for some time now. Uh, we were under the impression that the project was finally going to be done this year, and apparently not. Uh, Jason Fires, the councillor for Ward Two, which uh, is uh, right on Queen Street, of course, any place uh, that's the dividing line between Wards One and Wards Two. Uh, so the counselor for uh, that area, for the east side, shall we say, uh, joins us to try to bring us up to speed on what's going on. Jay, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Oh, thank you for the time and the reprieve from Friday, Bill.
0: <laughs> it wow. happens. It happens. Uh, Gilligan lost his phone too, and they never heard from him again. So anyway, a uh, little sea cruise instead of doing a segment for those that didn't uh, hear the show, the show on Friday. Uh, so what's going on with Queen Street, Jay?
1: Well, you're you're bang on. It has been years in the making i remember Councillor mccaddy and i doing a walkabout with about 100 residents from the either side of that border east and west and identifying some quick wins which we implemented but uh, ultimate solution being a two-way that was from a pedestrian safety focus and then you fast forward to about a year and a half ago where uh, the ward 8 then ward 8 counselor now ward 14 counselor Ah, uh, Terry Whitehead saw the value in uh, his uh, mountain commuting times being decreased if uh, that one-way queen were to be put into effect and go all the way to King Street. And so here we are uh, as uh, one of the many issues that we're finding uh, that are relevant to this delay. Um, we can't go to King until spring anyway is is one of the issues. And then there's some capital uh, sorry, infrastructure issues. And then there's timing issues with the Lock Street uh, being closed, having Queen closed at the same time. And so uh, with six or seven delays identified by our fairly new uh, transportation director, it was uh, decided, at, and after consult with, uh, I think, four relevant councillors, that we uh, put it off till the spring of 2019.
0: When, when you talk about delays, uh, I mean, were these anticipated? I mean, because this thing's been on the books, and, and you, there was a, a plan that was approved... Have have there been some second thoughts about that plan?
1: Uh, I wouldn't suggest second thoughts. There's certainly been a great deal of um, input. Uh, We had, you know, three different councillors in in Ward 1, as I mentioned the history on this thing, since, uh, you know, the conversation about a two-way conversion began. It was McCaddy, then Aidan Johnson, uh, who did a lot of the work with myself, and we had representatives from each of the neighborhood associations working as liaisons so we had uh, kirkendall neighborhood association Durand neighborhood association sitting at the table and ultimately tweaking what uh, you know in collaboration with our staff what what uh, worked best in terms of a pedestrian safety focus but we also had to you know uh, um, you know have those inputs with respect to you know sufficient movement uh rush hour counts there was all sorts of conversations that led to the point and then you fast forward a new counselor comes along uh and uh, it did take a little bit of time understandably so for Councillor counselor wilson uh, of ward one to get up to speed and that all uh meant a bit more engagement uh, a slight delay uh, ultimately though we had already had the approval from last term of council for the funding of this project bill as you know so So it was just a matter of uh, making certain that the new councillors, and Councillor Danko also is uh, affected by this, uh, up in Ward uh, 8. Uh, so so there, there was engagement that needed to happen due to the election. So, so that's one of uh, many reasons why the project has been delayed uh, an election and uh, getting new councillors and ultimately their communities up to speed.
0: You mentioned some of the neighborhood associations uh, that are having. The, they, now the ones you talked about, as a matter of fact, all of them around there, and there are a number of them, have been very proactive on a number of different issues over the years. What kind of feedback are you getting from them?
1: Well, I'm dealing with uh, the Durand Neighborhood Association, and have been for some time. They, they're probably—I the, well, think—they are the largest association, and in, 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 if not Ontario, probably Canada. But they're also extremely active, and they're—they're uh, they're very good at outreach to to the people who live and work and play in the Durand Neighborhood Association. It hasn't been bad. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we had an, a delay. I would suggest prior to um, just just following, Councillor whiteheads motion that i had to unfortunately announce to the neighborhood association and at that time my marching orders at least uh, from the neighborhood uh, perspective were come on let's get going we've been waiting a long time many of those people participated bill in the walkabout that i had with councillor mccaddy and 100 residents years and years before so naturally along with myself they were anxious and 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 then this time around Given the criteria of reasons, and like I say, six or seven reasons, for this delay, uh, so far so good. I mean, they're still anxious, but they're also understanding that if we're going to do it, we need to do it right. And, you know, over time, things change. One of the things, uh, for example, is uh, you you know this intersection well. And when you come down uh, today, uh, the, the the one-way, two-way interchange is at Herkimer, Bill.
2: Yeah. And there's that, yeah.
1: there's that concrete island in, in some Still wonder why or how that ever came to be but underneath that concrete island on queen at herkimer is uh, uh, a real headache in terms of infrastructure there's cables and wires and different utilities and so on and so forth and you know once we have approval the engineers go in and take closer looks at, at what what will constitute removal or or movement or, or any kind of change there and it turned out to be a monumental task uh, that's a reason uh, for a delay and being that it is a monumental task there's now going to be some effect on the relatively new Herkimer bike lanes. So um, there's an opportunity now with this delay to engage at a greater capacity with the Hamilton Cycling Committee, Cycle Hamilton, other interested parties. There was a, a subcommittee that may want to uh, regroup as part of the Durant Neighborhood Association and have a say in how that detour is going to look when that extensive work that is part of what is now a spring to a conversion, 2020, Uh, you know, how that'll work in terms of the the cycling infrastructure and the detours that'll be involved. Their input uh, probably was lacking, as you know, as it related to this major cannon construction that's going on now. One of the things I had vowed, and I think others on council, and, and frankly, cycling staff of the city of Hamilton, was that we would do a better job of that. This gives us that opportunity to engage a little more on that particular piece, which has turned out to be a major infrastructure headache as part of
0: this uh, transition. I'm glad you brought that intersection out, because it is obviously one of the big areas that, uh, that people can in their mind's eye, I guess, as we talk about this project. Uh, how do you handle the the, the the layout of that particular intersection, Jay? I mean, uh, as you're going along Herkimer and you get to Queen, uh, if you're eastbound, as we all know, there's a bit of a jog there, right, where that island is. It's It's not at 90-degree angles, and... Uh, there's a concern about traffic uh, public safety I mean pedestrian safety among others in situations like that. do you anticipate there being a stoplight there I mean because you know, you've th- those are two major intersections Queen a House of course a lot busier, but still a fair bit of traffic on herkimer as well
1: yeah, I think that is a a, a full- on stop i'm you know I don't have the the map uh, with me bill, but you're right there are a few jogs there's also another one as you know up by Jackson that jogs yeah. over a little bit and, and hunter. Uh, Jog slightly as well i think so so uh th- those uh, very much were part of the uh public engagement uh those conversations on safe crossing that was a major part and i'd have to say that the representatives from the grand neighborhood association anyway
2: were very very helpful
1: with that because they know they they cross there to use the Robertson rec center or take their kids to school if they're living further south uh in the duran neighborhood and uh i thought staff especially now we have some award-winning staff david ferguson and others who uh really know how to engage know how to listen and and oftentimes they'll have on-site meetings to really understand what are the issues in the immediate community and so so those sorts of things were addressed do i know exactly what's happening at not sure i could tell you it was it was it was a rather complicated process because of that jog but uh certainly uh in terms of pedestrian safety and, and, and particularly at the crossings bill all, all of the issues i believe have been covered and we certainly have had lots of time to engage and cover them
0: uh i'm i'm a big fan of public consultation don't get me wrong on this but uh are you concerned at this stage that if you open this up again for further uh, study like this that uh, that's going to be another delay
1: no i think that the only uh, real consultation that that kind of happened early on is with the cycling community uh most of the folks there bill it's a great question i i am uh to just answer briefly but ultimately uh most of the folks that i i'm aware of in the cycling community are are like-minded when it comes to you know safe uh, streets pedestrian mobility uh, our transportation master plan they know it well and uh, they would be supportive of a two-way conversion of queen uh, and so I think that they'll respect that uh, the timelines have already been altered on a few occasions uh, and I think that most if not all of the cycling communities so the ones that we do intend to engage with since we have this time uh, would be supportive of maintaining a spring 2020 implementation and ultimately bill to we're focusing a lot on the conversations that I've been having over three terms of council now on this you know rather popular topic of a two-way conversion of queen uh, on on the the pedestrian aspect and the safety uh, to pedestrians, and there are so many. I mean, we're talking about very intensified neighborhoods uh, throughout Kirkendall and Durand especially, uh, who are, are pedestrians and are using these crossings a lot, and and there have been lots of uh, temporary safety measures implemented over time uh, leading up to this two-way conversion, but there's also clearly a benefit. I mean, Councillor Whitehead was the mover of the motion, and you know the battle scars that I've had, and he has with the debates I've had on on these kinds of issues over the years. But he's the mover of this motion because there's also a very uh, significant element of efficiencies for those morning and afternoon commuters as well. Because now you're going to go artery to artery instead of having to cut through all these neighborhoods where these rather ad hoc sometimes one-off slow down traffic measures have taken place, be them speed humps or no left turns or or certain times a day where you can't enter the street, and that gets confusing, discombobulated for both those people who want their morning commute to be effective, uh, understanding, and I think most of them, notwithstanding what some may say in the community, appreciate that we do things in the name of public safety, uh, especially when it revolves around traffic. But but, uh, it'll be much more efficient if you can think about it. You can go all the way to Maine, or you can go all the way to King, make that left, make that right, stay on major arterials and not get all discombobulated, having to cut through your neighborhoods.
0: Jay, what's this going? I, I know not everybody's on side with these projects, but I, I, I like to think that more and more with each one of these things, people are starting to understand the wisdom in this. But there is a schedule. I mean, this is not the last one that you guys are doing or planning on doing anyway. What does that do to this schedule?
1: Well, uh, you know, Aberdeen was a bit of a debate there a couple of months ago, Aberdeen's uh, transition cannot occur until Queen. So that's that. what it does there is delays that. Uh, part of the delay, as I said, was the Lock Street uh, uh, construction that's going on, Lock Street South. Uh, so uh, that actually is helpful now, this delay. Uh, I, I would suggest that the fact that the budget has been approved, I don't anticipate that there'd be any pushback on that. But there's the, as you know, Bill, more than most, is being a former municipal councillor uh there is always each and every year when you get into the budget process uh that opportunity to reconsider things like WIPS outstanding projects that that maybe have been taken too long and different attitudes different elected officials maybe may make uh, decisions that are counter to what originally led to that budget in the first place there's always potential for that i really don't see that here um uh, being that no first and foremost this this uh transition of queen Uh, has been front and center for so long. It's been um, uh, widely talked about and debated. You and I have had other conversations on it, and, of course, it's been covered uh, fully in the media. Uh, So I I don't anticipate that there, but, you know, you you never know, and there will definitely be a budget process between now and uh, the new date.
0: Very quickly, I know your time is tight here, but I'm just getting an email as you and I are having this conversation uh, from Trina. Uh, who says, uh, I guess this is pursuant to a conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago, uh, what's the update on the bike lanes in front of the GO station on Hunter?
1: So that's uh, all good to go. I'm not sure of the dates, Trina, but uh, that is something that also took some time. There's a three-block weeks, uh, three block stretch that leaves the two detached dis- or, or, or altered in a detour way. Uh, so I'm not certain of the timeline, but all the engagement is through. Uh, then the follow-up engagement of, on timelines and so forth to the adjacent property owners. I think it's this fall, Trina. I, I can only say imminent. I don't have it on me, but that's a good question.
0: All right. We'll stay in touch on that. Uh, downtown Councilor, Ward 2 Counselor Jason Farr. Jay, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900-CHML.